Thanks for downloading this episode from Teachers Talk Radio. You can find the full schedule and listen back to all our shows at ttradio.org. This show is brought to you in partnership with the Witherslack Group, experts in special education and care. Enjoy the podcast. So I'm joined by Anne Longfield, former Children's Commissioner, um, whose Commission on Young Lives has just published their final report, Hidden in Plain Sight, which describes itself as a national plan of action to support vulnerable teenagers to succeed and to protect them from adversity, exploitation and harm. So Anne, tell us about how this commission came into being and why you found it was needed so much. Well, um, I've worked with um, children, young people and their families throughout my whole um, adult life, um, which is several decades now. Um, I used to run a national charity before I was the Children's Commissioner. But my time during the Children's Commissioner, um, I really set out to demonstrate the level of vulnerability and how so many children were falling through the gaps in different services. So we set up a, a, a vulnerability data framework um, and each year I used to report on the levels of vulnerability. Now, the group of children that were the most concerning to me, the ones that were the most at risk and furthest away from getting the kind of policy solution investment attention they needed were teenagers at risk. I was often told that they were too old to help, too complicated to help, um, couldn't be helped. Um, and none of those I uh, was prepared to accept. And um, I could see from the data that there were more and more young people that were falling into harm. We know that um, exploitation, both child sexual exploitation, but what I'm primarily talking about, criminal exploitation has been increasing. We see the headlines, you know, the awful headlines of children coming to harm and some tragically losing their lives. And every one of those I've spoken to or their families I've spoken to have told me time and time again how it could have been prevented. If there could have been help here, if it could have been seen earlier, if there'd have been someone there, if there'd have been youth works to youth workers to inspire them. So we set about to, to set out what that might be. And throughout the last 15 months, we've talked to hundreds and hundreds of young people and their families, but also community groups, teachers, um, mental health professionals and others um, who've told us exactly where they think things are going wrong and what needs to be done. And we've just put that forward together as a platform for debate, but also one which we see would be a really positive platform for reform to help reduce the risk and harm for these teenagers. Mm. No, there was a part of a report very early on, actually, which really struck me about um, in 21-22, there are over 16,000 instances in England where child sexual exploitation is identified by local authorities as a factor, um, and then assessed by social workers, and 11,000 instances where gangs are a factor, and 10,150 instances where child criminal exploitation is a factor. And it goes on to say these numbers are likely to just the tip of the iceberg and I think that's so important to note. Now the commission stated that it would bring together experts and work collaboratively with system leaders. Now I'm a teacher, I work for you know I work for Teachers Talk Radio and I'm sure our listeners want to know which teachers did you talk to in the process? Well the whole commission has been hosted by Oasis Charitable Trust that host that that run 52 schools so we've spoken to 
an awful lot of those teachers, but everywhere we've visited, we've talked to teachers. We've been to Birmingham, we've been to um, parts of East London, we've been to Manchester, different places we've gone. Teachers have always been part of that mix. And also, of course, you know, when we've had discussions and debates and seminars, there's been a lot of involvement of teachers. But equally, we've we've spoken to mental health professionals, we've spoken to youth workers. You know, we didn't want to start seeing this as one area of the sector's, you know, priority or 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 responsibility, if you like, for us actually acknowledging that children's needs are best met in the round are actually is actually the way forward. Hmm. No, certainly, but, you know, one of the things which, you know, working in the school every day, as I do, one of the things that we always lament is the lack of wraparound um, support and care for our students, just because the funding's not there at the moment. And, yeah, I, I, you know, speaking to a range of professionals is um, very, very important. So let's go on to your recommendations. Now, but probably the flagship recommendation from the Commission's report hidden in plain sight was the sure start for teenagers. First of yeah. all, Sure Start is a well-known brand name programme, so surely there must be. Just tell our listeners why you've gone for the naming of Sure Start. It does elaborate on the report, but for those who haven't read the report, could you elaborate? And why why do you think it needs to be a universal offer? Because it says that it should be placed initially in the areas of greatest need um, yeah. and being a universal offer. So just tell us why it needs to be universal in view of the So there's, a, a, there's several components of this. The starting point is that um a lot of schools and teachers we spoke to talked about uh the fact that they couldn't easily access support for those children who needed help start <laughs> um and there often wasn't funding there um and that was something that could be seen to be obviously an immense gap the other part being that actually a lot of the support services need to be around health so essentially this pulls together and brings together on the principles of Sure Start for younger children, um, health and education into a common vehicle, if you like. We drew on the principles of Sure Start for younger children, place-based, um, responding to local need, open doors so people can feel it's there and trusted and there's people there to be able to turn to, but also specialists within their education psychologists, mental health specialists and others, who can help. Um, and we want to reflect that universal principle, but also recognize that it needs to also be highly targeted as well. So we said to start in the areas of most disadvantage. Now this is what Sure Start did. There's some controversy about whether Sure Start of old, um, you know, was a haven for kind of pointy elbow middle-class parents. Well, you know, I, I in my previous charity, I ran um, a lot of those children's centres and it was what you made of it. Um, and certainly some of the areas that we ran in, there weren't many middle-class parents around to get in on the act. But those were the principles. We talked to a lot of families who said, look, we found that awful, had that awful moment where we found a burner phone or you know, a, a stack of cash or a knife in our child's bedroom. And at the moment they ring social services, they ring the police and there's not help there for them at that point until it reaches crisis point. So this is all about having trusted people who can work with people, be able to intervene early, to be able to notice when children are struggling and stand alongside. The reason we wanted to, to, to wrap it around with school is, that of course, 
you know, as if we needed any reminding, schools are the anchor point in the community, but certain during the pandemic, that was so obviously the case. So we know that often teachers will be the first to identify the need and they, these, these, this support mechanism will be able to wrap around um, uh, that, that need. Mm. Yes, it, so it, it sounds as if what you're trying to say is schools are doing so much at the moment to support young people, but actually it, need, it needs to be, actually, there needs to be funding into external services so it's not as much pressure on the schools. Is that, is that what I'm... Well, I think schools I'm, will often be the ones that will identify that need because they'll, we know they are. We know that teachers are the biggest referrers into social services, often into mental health. Um, and um, but but they turn around and there's not that support there or indeed to get it they have to jump over hoop after hoop after hoop and certainly for those kids with complex needs or multiple needs we know that you know they're in a particularly difficult position because they often can't meet the high thresholds and then they just ping around the system so schools are actually were you know they're doing a lot of this already but are being hampered every step of the way by the kind of the the paucity of support around them but also it's taking immense amounts of staff time to do it so this allows teachers to be able to identify need to have people around to advise and support and help those children but also then to be able to focus on you know the classroom and teaching within that so i think teachers would certainly welcome that absolutely obviously it can't just be make-believe it has to be funded and i've always argued that sure start is a mechanism to save it brings together those uh, professionals that are already there now we had a lot of young people and families telling us when they got to the point of having you know quite recognized needs there were sometimes 20 professionals, one even told me 30 professionals involved in their lives, but often not with any one of those, no, you know, having a clear responsibility to take a lead. So in a way, this cuts through a lot of that as the Troubled Families Programme used to, and actually is able to lead that bespoke um, uh, support, but bring other professionals around them and orchestrating 20 professionals around a, a child's life has got to be um, a more effective way of doing it than having 20. Yes, I think the funding point is very important. The other thing ultimately that is needed in order to make these uh, recommendations a reality is government support. So one of the yes. things which so one of the things which um, has been one of the recommendations of the report is making the crisis recognizing the crisis of teenage harm and violence as a national threat made a national priority by the prime minister including drawing up a national strategy to reduce risk and monthly cobra style meetings um held to drive and monitor progress um how is the commission and how are you going to try to get the government's ear on that or it, yeah. it, it, it's not you know it's difficult to make this a it's hard to make this a political football i think it's honestly probably the wrong thing to do so how are you going to achieve cross-party consensus on this? Exactly. So this has to be cross-party because what you don't want to do is to have, um, you know, one party ploughing ahead on one thing, another having kind of an allergic response to it. I mean, that's how we got here in the first place. We sure start, in my opinion. You know, I think it was a mistake to dismantle it. Um, but... Um, uh, the 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 notion that a government can see this as a threat was actually taken from what David Cameron did about child sexual exploitation back in 2015. He recognised it as a national threat. 
he gave the responsibility to the National Crime Agency, cascading through the police to see it as such and respond on that basis. Now, you know, child sexual exploitation is far from, you know, resolved, but nonetheless, that was a huge step change in um, in response to that. <coughs> so our, our ambition is that this is seen in the same way. And it's not just us saying it. The National Audit Office put out a report on Friday about vulnerable adolescents. Now, what they said was that even though several government departments were actually doing um, things, had programmes and interventions, there wasn't coordination and there wasn't an overarching strategy that needed to change. <coughs> so um, on that basis, this is something that I think there is a strong argument for, clearly, you know, there's a difficult economy at the moment. There's a difficult um, uh, 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 government that thinks it's got, you know, less than two years in office. But nonetheless, there's an argument to be had. And I think the NAO coming behind this, actually, with a strong argument that needs more coordination, is in itself a strong one. There's also been a report out today from the Youth Endowment Foundation um, or fund, which uh, government has given money to 200 million to over, over 10 years to show what works for um, reducing violence. Now, they've done a survey of, of young people. They're showing that 39% of young people have either been a victim of violence or witnessed it. And when you look at those children who have a social worker, it goes up to 60%. Um, for free school meals, it's 45%. So the argument within this is that, you know, this isn't something that happens to some children over there, out of sight, if you like. It's actually all our children and needs that kind of response. So I think, you know, as in all these things, you have to push uh, where there's a glimmer of hope. Uh, we've got the first contested election coming up in the next two years for some time. Um, so, you know, there's an opportunity here to look at those manifestos. And certainly I think Labour um, are, are interested in elements of this and have already committed to some, such as childcare, such as um, uh, mental health dropping and the like. Um, but there's also a spending review coming up. And this is, you know, we aim for this to be a basis of a debate around how we reform services, not only to help young people more, but also to get more for the money we're investing. And that means getting into kids before crisis. Definitely. I mean, I'm just looking at the Youth Endowment Fund reports about how 14% of teenagers supported to say they're being a victim of violence, 65% supported their behaviour appearance or where they went to keep us safe. I'm sure we picked up on a future show by um, another host. Um, you mentioned mental health. And one of the commission's um, recommendations was a one-off mental health recovery program, financed in part by a levy on social media companies and mobile phone providers. Um, they might not be too happy about that. Um, why, well, they why might not be. Why, well, why, why have you gone to them? Why, why are you targeting them? So, well, what we've tried to do with this report is not just look at a huge shopping list for government and say, go do it. You know, recognising this kind of constraints and also recognising there are pots of money that could usefully be linked in this way. One of the things we've we've advocated is for an army of uh, youth practitioners. We said that should be funded out of the proceeds of crime money. It only seems right. Um, and there is a direct link here, I think, with 
social media, not causing necessarily harm, but certainly amplifying anxiety um, and poor mental health. We know that a lot of social media platforms and, and mobile phone companies are making, you know, um, sizable profits, many billions of pounds profits. So this would be a very modest amount that we'd be looking for. And out of that amount, which would make a real difference in my view, would be, and we'd say a million, a billion pound recovery program, funding into straight CAM specialist treatment to get them back on their feet again, because they're just absolutely bowled over with the levels of demand. They've not caught up since um, pandemic and the um, uh, the, num the the treatment that they're able to offer just doesn't meet the scale of, of, of the need. To get them back on their feet, to get them able to get children seen and treated within a reasonable time. Then the mental health teams in schools, which, you know, I've been a big um, proponent of from the start. Um, uh, teachers have told me, schools have told me how positive those programs are. When they finish the phase they're in next year, they will only be in a third of schools. So we think that needs to continue to get to all schools, hence some of the funding for this. Some kids also told us they didn't want to be medicalized. They didn't want to go to clinics. They were never going to go to the GP. They wanted drop-in centers in the community, sometimes in youth centers and elsewhere where they could get more informal advice first and foremost. So we've costed some of those in. But then also others just said, look, you know, we want to look after our own mental health and well-being. We want stuff to do. We want to be able to go places, do drama, have fun, volunteer we were told quite often, things that we could do together outside school, it sort of enhances friendship, all of those things. So we've put some social prescription money in there as well. Mm -hmm. That gets you to the point where you're able to stabilize what's going on and change the way it's delivered long-term. But, you know, it will take that kind of money. Mm -hmm. um, you described the funding for the mental health program, one billion pounds as a modest amount. Is it enough? Well, it's only it really is only catch up money. You know, the, the, there are new integrated care services in every area. They need to be funding mental health support for young people as an important slice of what they do. But what they've told us and what other health professionals told us, they need to reform the way they're working. But they can't do that when it's so unstable uh, because there's such high demand. So really all it's doing is trying to take that next step enable them to get back on their feet and then being able to look at how that funding happens in a much more, um, uh, you know, uh, sustainable ongoing way. It, it, it obviously can't go anywhere near meeting the needs in the long run. But as a two year programme, I think that, you know, it would make a big difference. Mm. Um, I want to move on. I want to talk about the next, one of the other recommendations, which was to open all school buildings before and after school at weekends and during holidays to provide safe and appealing places for teenagers. And we start, one of the questions which was on social media, because this was not reported fully, was, well, are you going to pay teachers to do that? The answer is, of course, it will be staffed by community groups, youth practitioners and volunteers, um, and financed by national lottery community funding and funds from dormant bank accounts. My question is, that it, not my question actually, it comes from a secondary school head teacher in Croydon who says school buildings are open before and after school already. We provide breakfast, clubs, homework spaces, extra lessons, sports fixtures. This is a lack of inquiry. How do you respond to that? 
What does lack of inquiry mean? I, I, I wish I want to know. But I wish I'd know, but I suppose I can't. You mean I've not looked? I've looked. I've not looked properly enough. <laughs> it's, it's sort of. Yes, obviously it's been a very wide-ranging inquiry, but it's sort of missed the point a little bit that the vast majority of schools are open. Like my, my school is open until 6 p.m. for kids every day. So okay, so so first of all, it's been a long-standing um uh concern that schools have brilliant buildings you know, billions of pounds of investment in buildings and also precious resources in them. And if schools are already open, then that's brilliant, you know, <laughs> fantastic. But I know an awful lot of schools aren't. And I'm talking about into the evening. I'm talking to nine, 10 o'clock at night. I'm talking about weekends and I'm talking about school holidays. Um, and we were really inspired by some schools we actually visited and spoke to. So Vic Goddard over in Passmore, um, in Essex, you know, very well known on, on social media. He um, opens his school virtually every day of the year um, uh, and does it as part of what he does. A particular school in um, Headley in Enfield, one of the Oasis schools, they talk about children being in at 6.30 in the morning. Hunted kids will be there by seven o'clock because they don't want to be in the park. They talk about sweeping them out at the end of the evening, you know, when they need to go home. So it will be, you know, it will be whatever is doable in an area. If the buildings aren't accessible, then clearly, you know, that isn't something that is going to work. But if there are resources in there, if they can be opened up to community use, then brilliant. And I know that buildings are used, but to be able to open those up more widely, we did say that there should be some funding for some small grants to be able to do adaptions, maybe, a, you know, gate in a different bit or doors or whatever. So it wasn't the whole school that was being put over. We said there should be funding for the activities to actually run. Um, and obviously maintenance will be part of that. But then we did foresee that there would be others, community groups, youth workers elsewhere coming in to actually run some of that provision. I know in a lot of areas that includes, does include teachers who want to be part of that team, possibly, you know, um, uh, 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 agency teachers or part-time teachers, but actually um, that would be down to, that would be down to an individual. So great if someone, if people are doing that, we were, we saw that and we were inspired by that, but we'd like to push it as far as we can to get as much use of, out of those precious resorts uh, as possible. Do you think your funding sources for this, Ben, your National Lottery Community Funding and the Dormant Bank accounts, do you think that's going to be sufficient to pay for the rising energy bills to open all schools? We've seen we've seen in some multi-academy trusts, in some schools we've seen energy bills go up fourfold, fivefold, even further. So this is going to be one of the big challenges. How would you plan to sort of meet that one? Sure, sure. Well, of course, uh, it, it's not. It's not um, enough to pay for energy, uh, the, the hiking costs of energy throughout the normal working of the school at all. But I do think that this fits very well with the National Lottery Community Fund. And also there's just been um, a, a consultation on the dormant bank accounts, um, which have put money into youth provision before. Um, we're not, of course, able to say these funds will be used. But what we've been trying to do here is look creatively at areas of funding that match with what we're proposing and suggest that those are considered as a way forward. Mm. 
Yeah, no, that's interesting, and I'm sure it's a, it's a big. It will be a big challenge, regardless. And, and if you're fair. renting, if you're yeah, if you're renting somewhere, of course you're going to have to pay for the mm -hmm. maintenance and the running costs while you're there. So that that will be an added pressure for outside normal use um, uh, time. But you know, those are those are those are days we're in. In terms of you know, in terms of um, in, in terms of normal school use, I think you know, government will have to respond to that. And obviously, everyone is feeling very worried about what's going to happen on Thursday. Yes. Um, now, I want to talk about a previous report from the Commission and actually how the final report has actually changed its, changed, changed its tune ever so slightly. It's on the issues around exclusions in primary schools and around pupil referrals. So in the Altogether Now report, um, it mm. calls for primary schools to end, to end exclusions by 2026 and for the scrapping of the label pupil referral unit. Now, the final report has called for to support primary schools and exclusions by 2024, that's two years earlier, and to scrap pupil referral units entirely and not just the label, um, with special provisions established in and around schools. Could you just explain what thinking process has led to the change in the Commission's mm. point on this? Well, I think they both come from the same place. Um, the fact that there, um, at the moment, some children are being excluded from school in primary schools that don't don't have to be excluded if wouldn't have to be excluded if there was wider support there for them. We met several groups of parents that went, whose children had been excluded several times during primary school. Um, a lot of those were children who had undiagnosed special needs who once they'd got into an environment where there was special needs support, they're actually able to flourish. So this very much fits with um, being able to get that support in the first place to intervene early. We said um, uh, by 2026, um, originally, because, um, you know, a lot of people said that, you know, it would take time, but we have put it at 2024 because we wanted to be ambitious about it. Is a proposal, let's put it that way. And then with 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 pupil referral units, I think actually we're we're we we were talking about the same, really about the same proposal. Um, we want we acknowledge completely that some children will need a different environment, especially specialist environment, but everywhere we went. You know, even where there were good pupil referral units, there was really a toxicity of, often about um, about the provision. And we felt actually to rename it, to call it specialist provision and to see it as a wholesale different start again. Specialist provision would have so much to benefit uh, uh, to benefit from with alternative provision. Again, acknowledging that some is good. Um, we wanted to really follow um, the more progressive approach that many are taking, which is about identifying kids early, working with schools, being able to prevent exclusions much more um, of an integrated approach. Mm. Um, yes, it's interesting. I just want to read what Sarah Johnson um, said in response to a report. She's president of the National Organisation of PIUs and Alternative Provision. She said, we need AP to be seen within a continuum of provision, funded appropriately, planned for, regulated and not ad hoc crisis management. We need all relevant parties to come together for effective planning with a solution-focused approach. Um, nowhere in there does she say we need to rename AP to SP or something else. So 
what, why do you think we need a rebrand? So, so, I, so I do agree completely with what, what she's saying there. I think, though, at the moment, there is um, too much of it, or has been too much of an emphasis on um, AP mopping up on children's needs and provision. Um, I think that um, whilst there is some good AP, and I know this fant some fantastic, I've been to some fantastic provision, also there's many that is mediocre. Um, children often don't attend some of the PRUs and the attendance rates are really low. So there's an awful lot that's stacked against you. And of course, some people can make it work and make it work brilliantly, but that's often despite everything around it. So I think here, if we are remaking the um, system of support and remaking ambitions about being inclusive and keeping kids within the school family, then actually there's something there about taking the step to rename what is there and presenting it as a different start. Um, and that's something that I think has huge merits for it. Okay, I'm going to read what Tom Bennett said about um, this part of the report, the DfE's behaviour advisor. It's rather inflammatory. Um, he talked about the decision to end exclusions in all primary schools by 2024. Another example of how views with no connection to the realities are often platformed above those of school-based practitioners. This added PR uses ridiculous and a safeguarding nightmare ending exclusion. Does he have a point? Well, look, Tom's got his views. I can give you a list of the teachers we spoke to, and actually the teaching representatives and the unions who all thought it was a very good thing to do in terms of reducing exclusions and uh, ending exclusions for younger children. I think this whole issue of safeguarding, of course, if there are children that are being placed in a situation of being unsafe, I know there was a, you know, there were there were several comments about whether there are sexual assaults in primary school, you know, there would still be processes to deal with it. But if you've got a wraparound level of support that can really offer children the help they need to resolve problems, then the aim being surely to prevent them getting to the point where they have to be um, ex excluded in some way. Mm. And of course, there's some great examples of, you know, we looked at we looked at Glasgow and how they did in Glasgow for, for their secondary schools. They yeah. had huge, huge exclusions. Um, 400... Have, let's have a look at Glasgow, actually, because um, Bannerman High School in Glasgow, teachers are holding 12 days of strike action over violent and abusive pupil behaviour. Um, and the NASUWT union has instructed members to refuse to teach pupils who are known to be threatening and abusive. The union claims that teachers have been shoved, threatened, sworn at and intimidated by pupils. This can't be right. This can't go on. In Glasgow. No, of course, of course this not. Is, this is, Glasgow, is, Glasgow is cited glowingly in your report about how exclusions have reduced by 81% and violence have fallen by 48%. But this is the knock-on effect, surely, that pupil violence, intimidation and staff are being threatened in schools and the students can, you know, teachers do not feel safe coming to work and they're holding 12 days of strike action. That can't go on, surely. So it's the surely part of it, which I take issue with there, of course. You know, no one wants anyone to be in a classroom where there's violence, where there's threats, where there's behaviour that puts anyone at risk, be that children or be that be those adults. But there are ways that you can meet some of those needs. There are ways you can prevent those children from getting to that point. And I think 
what we're saying is there's a habit here. Certainly in Glasgow, the way it's described was that there was a habit of exclusion. Let's remember that the local authority runs the schools in um, in Glasgow. So there was very much a kind of bureaucratic approach there to exclusions. Now, what we were, what we saw, what we heard was how there'd been positive moves to bring that down. Now, if there are issues that remain, clearly they need to be dealt with. This isn't this isn't about just allowing kids to run riot and not have any consequences. It's actually about being able to put a system in place that anticipates the level of need, anticipates those kids that are going to need in some way a different approach. And yes, being able to give them that different approach, but have a two way to that, because we learned so many of times of children who went into alternative provision and never came back. And some of the most kind of, you know, some of the areas where the toughest conversations were, were the areas where children have been excluded from school, gone to PRUs, been excluded from PRUs, and, you know, still hadn't got that level of support. Um, so it's not, in any, it's not in any way trying to excuse bad behaviour, but it is about tackling it and not trying to just shunt it somewhere else, which I don't in any way say schools do, but I think the system hasn't faced up to it. Hmm. No, um, no, there's certainly much better, which I would agree with. Um, it's not just in Glasgow, though, of course, because in primary schools, you say your ambition is to your ambition. The ambition is to end primary exclusions by 2024. Now, more than half of exclusions in primary schools are for defensive adults. So just to our primary, my primary colleagues who might be listening to this now, who, you know, one in five teachers say that they have actually been a victim of physical assault by a pupil in the last year. So what is your message to those teachers into what should happen to a child who assaults them in their place of work? So obviously assaults of any kind are just completely unacceptable. So they can't be allowed to happen. They can't be allowed to continue. There's a responsibility, obviously, to employees to ensure that they're safe and to other kids to ensure they're safe. But we were really inspired by some of the nurture programs in primary school and some quite detailed nurture programs where you have trainee social workers working with children, working with um, families, <clears throat> being able to un anticipate what's coming down the tracks. Now, you know, knowing that the level of need is high, this is where schools, I don't think, should be left by themselves and where we do need those family support workers, where we do need those um, additional um, uh, social care workers to be able to work with families to tackle these. Because at the moment, what I can see is that teachers and schools have been left as the last people standing virtually and having to deal with these things on the front line because there's no one else there. What I'm trying to do, not just with this report, but what I've been trying to do for some time is make sure that there are others there who can actually recognize when there are potential difficulties coming down the tracks before school um help those children start school in the best place but stand alongside those families and those children to make sure they have the kind of support structure if you like throughout their time in school now it's possible we know it's doable but it does need that commitment and it does need funding and, you know, I don't want any teacher to have to be in that position where they're trying to do their best, but actually there's no one, they look around and there's no one there. And I think that's what's been going on for some time. Mm. So 
I hate to dwell on this issue again, but one final question. Child sorts a teacher in school and the child's back in their, that teacher's classroom the next week, even though the teacher said they're not comfortable with that child in that classroom. Is that okay? Well, I don't think it's okay for 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 teachers to feel intimidated and by bad behaviour and to have that lingering. I think it needs dealing with. I think that there, there are lots of ways to do it. The ch child can be taken out of the class. They can be in a different environment. They can have a different uh, teaching group. They can have a different support group. But all of those take money. I know. I know they take money. So you know, I I, I understand the awful frustrations and the reality here. What I'm trying to do is argue for that not to be the case by wrapping support around that child and around the, around the school and around the teachers as well. Very complicated, very complex issue and certainly very ambitious, but thank you very much for your time, Anne. Thank you. You've been listening to Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio.